Richard Terry is Professor Emeritus of Soil Science at Brigham Young University. He received his BS degree from Brigham Young University in Agronomy and MS and PhD degrees from Purdue University in Soil Microbiology and Biochemistry. He was Assistant Professor of Soil Science at the University of Florida Everglades Experiment Station from 77 through 80. While in Florida, he conducted research in the microbial decom decomposition and substance of organic soils in the Everglades. There's many more, there's much more to read on the website for his biography. I'll, I'll just refer you to that. And with that, we'll turn the time over to Richard Terry. Did you see there was a laser pointer? That yes. So, let's turn this on to this. The laser pointer is that right there. Okay. Okay. Very good. Oh, that works. Very good. Thank you for uh, inviting me. I appreciate uh, Fair Mormon and uh, Book of Mormon Central for uh, the work that they're doing. Uh, the question you might ask is, what is a soil scientist doing in Mesoamerica working with uh, archaeologists? Uh, I got roped into this um, several years ago. Uh, I uh, got my degree at, out in the Corn Belt uh, at Purdue University and uh, uh, from there went to Florida and, and then to uh, BYU. It's been a wonderful experience to uh, work with students and uh, the students uh, at BYU are really superb. and. Uh, you know, I've had worked with people who want to hire postdocs. Uh, these are people who, after their PhD degree, and I tell them that, well, my undergrads would run circles around your postdocs, <laughs> and it's really true. Um, let's see. Yeah, there we are, crossing the Macabalero stream. Um, so there are a lot of things to do uh, down there, and. Uh, uh, you know, archaeologists, they're in the business of looking for artifacts, their structures, and so forth, to tell them about ancient lives. How did people live in uh, times past? But there are a lot of invisible artifacts, things that you can't see. Uh, for instance, uh, the chemical residues of some of their activities. Uh, trash. You throw trash away, well, that contains carbon, it contains nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. Most of those elements decompose and wash away, leach away, but phosphorus doesn't. Phosphorus stays put. So wherever you put phosphorus, it stays there. And, uh, and then there's stable isotopes. Uh, there's heavy carbon, there's also heavy nitrogen. And uh, different isotopes, uh, these are different forms of the same element, they just have a different number of uh, neutrons and therefore they weigh a different amount. And uh, those isotopes are still there. And they tell us about the type of plants that we're growing. And so we can look at ancient crops that way. And then uh, organic biomarkers. Uh, we've been doing work uh, just recently uh, uh, with Ray Matheny and his wife. Uh, we've been look, working down south of uh, uh, Monticello at Montezuma uh, Canyon. And we've been able to identify a pottery there that contains the residue of uh, chocolate. In other words, the pottery contains uh, theobromin. Well, chocolate does not grow in Utah. In fact, as far north as it grows is about Veracruz, Mexico. 
That's about as far north as it's going to grow. So what that indicates, about 1,000 uh, or maybe 700 uh, AD, there was a trade route between Mesoamerica and, uh, and Utah, and probably trade routes going on long before that. Um, I was asked by archaeologists at BYU to help uh, uh, set up a laboratory for uh, measurement of soil phosphorus. We're looking for places where trash was thrown away. We're looking for ancient kitchens and uh, things of that sort. And uh, so here we are, uh, my student uh, Fabian Fernandez from uh, Argentina, wonderful student. Uh, you know, most people in Guatemala had never heard an Argentinian speak. And they, <laughs> they would wonder, where in the world are you from? But anyway, they, uh, they loved to listen to him speak. Uh, of course, we're out in the middle of the wilderness, and uh, there's no electric power except for the generator. Uh, so we had battery-operated uh, balances and uh, battery-operated uh, spectrophotometer, and uh, plus we had to make our own distilled water. Well, we used deionized water, uh, but we were able to set up a little, uh, some columns so that we could purify uh, the water right out of the river, and uh, worked very well for us. Um, yeah, multidisciplinary groups. You know, uh, uh, archaeologists, archaeologists come in different types too. There's ceramicists, there's uh, lith uh, lithographers, there's uh, epigraphers. Uh, there are people that specialize in different things. Uh, pollen experts that can look at uh, what some of the plants were that were growing anciently. Mappers and then soil scientists. Now, of the professions of archaeology versus soil science, which one do you think spends, which group of professionals spends the most time in the soil? Well, by far, it's the archaeologists. They spend a lot more time in the soil than we do. We spend our time in the office, and, and uh, fortunately, we can get out to the soil uh, every once in a while to break the monotony of working in the office. Um, yeah, everyone's ignorant only on different subjects. And that's what's good about uh, a, uh, an interdisciplinary group of people. They can see things differently. As the soil scientist, uh, you know, I'm, the, I'm ignorant of much of archaeology. And therefore, I can say things. The students wouldn't dare say them, because if that came out of their mouths and their major professor heard them, they would be ridiculed. But, you know, they accepted my uh, ignorance, and uh, uh, sometimes I could view things much different than they did. And sometimes, oh yeah, maybe I ought to think of that a little bit differently. So we arrived at uh, Piedras Negras. Uh, this was an archaeological program from uh, BYU. and. Uh, uh, Piedras Negras is located uh, uh, in the Sierra de Lacandon uh, uh, Mountains and uh, very difficult to get to. Uh, this uh, was a remote region. You really can't even get there from Guatemala. You almost have to go into Mexico to get back into that part of uh, Guatemala. And that's where the uh, uh, communist guerrilla group held out for 10 or 20 years. Uh, the uh, Guatemalan army could never follow them. They could never follow their trails. 
And uh, there was one uh, time when we actually hired one of their uh, uh, former guerrillas and uh, had him negotiate a, a path out to a site that we wanted to see. And, and after a while I asked him, why don't you just cut a straight path through the forest? He says, I don't know, I was just taught to do it this way. But uh, with their zigzagging paths, the, uh, uh, the army could never follow them because you'd get lost. If you get two or three feet off from the trail, you can't find your way back. Uh, you're really lost in the forest. Uh, Piedras Negras, the site of some great artwork. This is the throne of the king of uh, uh, Piedras Negras. And uh, the back of the throne there, that's a sky monster and, and clouds are coming out of his nose. And then in the eyes of that uh, sky monster are his uh, parents, his uh, mother and father. And he would sit on the throne right in between the two of them. Um, these are some artifacts that are found. Of course, the archaeologists, they bring uh, back the soil from their digs and uh, sieve them, uh, wash the sherds, and then uh, because of the form of the sherd, they can sometimes uh, give us a pretty good date of when, uh, when it was made. So we worked at uh, Piedras Negras uh, uh, and then a few other sites. Uh, Aguateca and Cebal. There we worked with Dr. Takeshi Inamata and uh, learned some wonderful things from him. Uh, Motul to San Jose and then we've from there gone up to uh, Tikal. Worked there uh, several years. We worked on the Great Wall of Tikal. You know, uh, you talk about defensive earthworks and, and defensive systems. These are walls and they're all over the place. And, in uh, Central America, where you have a ditch, and then the earth from that ditch was thrown up on one side, not two sides, but one side. And, uh, uh, and then, if you look carefully at them and do some excavating, you find that there are post holes. So they had a wooden palisade on top. So it very much follows the description uh, that we see in uh, uh, Alma 50. But uh, the other thing about it, uh, this wall at Tikal was about 12 miles long and carved out of solid limestone. So they just didn't dig it out of the soil. They carved the limestone to make a ditch. Uh, quite an accomplishment. We've done work at, uh, uh, I've actually sent my students, uh, it's a two day hike to get out to El Mirador and uh, that, I'm not up to that, so I send my students out there. And uh, uh, very interesting place. So that was really the center of uh, people living in uh, Mesoamerica uh, around or after time of Christ. So time of Christ to about three, four hundred BC, AD. Uh, that's where most of the population was, and they lived under some interesting conditions out there. There are no rivers. There are no lakes. There are no streams. There's very little surface water, and that surface water is only there in the wet season, the rainy season. Um, and you have a severe dry season. Uh, what that means is you have to store six months of worth of water in order to get you and your family and your crops and so forth uh, through the dry season. Um, interesting thing to think about, uh, you know, uh, Mormon invited the Lamanites to come to the Hill Cumorah 
for a final battle. Well, you couldn't have had the final battle in El Mirador because there was no water to support visitors. There was just enough water for the people that lived there. Uh, but at Hill Camorra, uh, we understand that's a place of much water. My students uh, working with me, uh, uh, we're standing in front of a, a platform that an ancient Maya farmer lived on. Now, this platform was uh, made of uh, stone and uh, the floors were paved. The patio in front was paved. Uh, this was a wealthy farmer. These people in ancient times were very wealthy. Uh, if you look at the farmer's homes today, they're little shacks, uh, uh, not uh, very substantial, certainly not made with masonry. Here our workers are out sampling. So we take samples, grid samples, every five meters, every 10 meters just bring the soils in, analyze all of them, and from that we can tell where the hot spots are. Where are the spots where there's high phosphorus, meaning that some sort of activity of humans has deposited phosphorus at that location. Uh, here uh, we're collecting uh, soil core samples. In this case we're looking for ancient agriculture and we can use carbon isotopes to tell us where the ancient cornfields were located. And uh, with that information, we can then map, you know, how many acres of uh, good uh, uh, farmland that they actually used, that was actually used to grow uh, corn. Uh, I went to uh, Aguateca to work with Takeshi Inamata on his uh, site. Here he's looking at the uh, uh, broken stela. This is an interesting site. It, uh, uh, was conquered in one day and burned and then uh, some sort of a hex was placed on the site that nobody was to go back and because of that you know if, if you see a derelict building or something like that uh, people go through it and collect things that they might find useful they didn't do that at this site nobody went back and because of that every artifact is still in its place of use so what were where were they using the artifacts they're still there Here's a student, or a, uh, actually this is uh, one of the Shea brothers. Uh, about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, uh, Grandpa Shea brought his family from the highlands of Guatemala that are full. I mean, there's, the farmland's all used up. There's no place for a new farmer. So people have left the uh, highlands down into the lowlands of Guatemala, northern Guatemala. It's flat there, it's uh, more tropical. And uh, so he brought his family, and uh, their uh, sons are excavators at the site of Agoteca. Uh, this is one of the palace uh, structures that we uh, looked at and analyzed. Uh, at Piedras Negras, I was interested in how the archaeologists were doing their work. They were going out with picks and shovels and wheelbarrows to bring soil back to be sieved. Uh, this worker is using... Uh, uh, wooden skewers, maybe you can see them right there, uh, a paintbrush, a little brush, and a dustpan. That's the type of ar archaeology that they're doing there. That's because those artifacts are still there and most of them are still whole and tell an interesting story. Here uh, Takeshi Inamata overlooks the treasure room. 
apparently these folks knew that the conquering army was on their way, so they put all their treasures, their musical instruments, their uh, regalia, their artwork, and so forth, they put that in one room, and then you'll see that the door to that room was walled up. You can see the stones down there. Uh, so they walled that up and plastered it so that uh, the conquering army couldn't find their treasure, which they didn't. They didn't disturb it. Uh, but unfortunately, the whole building was burned, so everything was, was burned. And it was interesting to see that there were rolls of what could have been fabric at one time, but they were just charcoal uh, when, when they were uncovered. They found a, a mask there. By the way, if you want to read about uh, Aguateca, there are several articles in National Geographic. This is May of 2003, and it shows people depositing the, uh, the treasure from Aguateca in this room, including this mask uh, right down here. Whoops, I missed that. But uh, anyway, the mask, it's the thinnest, uh, it's about a sixteenth of an inch thick uh, ceramic. Big mask, but I mean, you just looked at it and it wanted to crumble. We actually had a conservator from the Smithsonian Institution come out just to lift it off the floor, because if we tried, it would have uh, turned to dust. This is Aguateca. It's a natural fortress. It's on a 300-foot uh, cliff top. And then behind part of the site, this is the grieta, or the chasm. That chasm is about 10 to 20 feet wide and about 150 feet deep. And when you're out there walking the site, you've got to be careful because you can't always see where this is. And if you make the wrong step, it's goodbye to you. Uh, so uh, uh, an interesting site. Um, near, next to the Royal Palace, there were a group of structures there. And we were interested in this building right here. It has three doors, there's three rooms to it. And come to find out, that was the person who made and restored the uh, royal regalia for the king. We actually found the king's crown in that uh, building. And uh, of course, next to that, this building right here, that's the uh, House of the Axes. By the way, we call this one the House of the Mirrors because they were beautiful iron pyrite mirrors that had been made and they were still located there. Uh, jade axes used to carve the stela and then another house right here, the house of the scribe. And uh, uh, in the ruins there it looked like shelves had fallen down and there were just rows of writing implements and uh, uh, implements for making ink and so forth. Uh, when we did our sampling you can see every X there is a sample that was taken. Uh, but we were sampling basically the floor material. That's uh, stucco that has degraded over the years. And, uh, uh, but what we found was there's a little bit of extra phosphorus in this north room. And behind that room, there is uh, a little bit more phosphorus. Uh, we're not calling that a midden. It was a temporary storage uh, point for uh, waste. And uh, then next to that, we did uh, iron. Uh, iron is high in soil, and this is natural soil uh, over behind the building. But the floor that we sampled here, that's stucco. That's basically uh, calcium carbonate, uh, calcium material that the stucco was made out of. 
and it's very low in iron. But what we found was uh, off to one side, there was a high accumulation of iron, and it was right at that location where we found the iron pyrite mirrors. So the person living in that uh, house was actually making and polishing the mirrors. Uh, they were breastplates, basically, that the king would wear. Beautiful pieces of art. Uh, this is, it's, the pyrite was glued to a ceramic backing. Uh, I've seen a picture of this where the uh, pieces were put back together, and I mean, no space at all between the individual uh, pieces. Of course, they're old and oxidized, so they're not uh, mirrors anymore. But if you were to polish that, it, uh, it would uh, be a beautiful mirror. So the person living in that house uh, maintained the regalia. This is a stela. This shows the face of the king, and he's wearing a crown. It has uh, five alabaster panels on it. And then in front is this uh, little sculpture of what they call the jester god. Uh, the reason they call it that is the jester god wears the three-pointed hat that the jester in Europe uh, would uh, wear. Um, and here's the actual crown. It was found in that structure, and uh, Takeshi is uh, modeling it for us there. Um, Let's, uh, of course, you've seen this. Uh, I didn't mean to show this uh, uh, today, but uh, uh, this is what we think of with the Book of Mormon and where the lands could be and where uh, things are situated. You have a land southward and a land northward with a narrow neck in between. And uh, there's been a lot of debate on uh, where that would be located. Um, These are some of the sites that we've worked at, or some of the major Maya sites. And uh, so you have cities in the southern portion, the southern portion of the northern lowlands. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so we have Aquateca and uh, Sebal, a few of these sites, Tikal located right there. And then as you go north of that, then you get up into uh, Yucatan and those sites up there. By the way, uh, climates are different in these areas. This northwest corner, Chunchuk Mill is, uh, uh, is in that area. It's very, very dry. Uh, instead of getting two meters of rain per year, they get one. Well, a meter of rain, that's, uh, that's three feet. That's three times what we get here. And yet, uh, uh, very, very dry. The, I mean, the soil is literally inches thick just a couple of inches thick in most uh, places, sitting on top of limestone. Um, by the way, the Chichilub uh, crater is right here. This is where the asteroid uh, landed that we think uh, caused the demise of the uh, dinosaur 65 million years ago. And after that time, the, uh, of course, this is beneath the ocean, and uh, limestone started to build up on top of that. Uh, as it turns out, uh, the event of that uh, asteroid strike, it killed the dinosaurs, but it prepared wonderful farmland for the Maya. Uh, so, uh, you know, you've got an area up there, most of the area has almost no soil at all, but in the sinkholes that developed uh, after the uh, uh, 
land raised, well, actually the ocean went down, so it's happened. And uh, so they have some wonderful farmland in certain places. Um, more information is coming available all the time. Uh, you know, we've, some people, uh, okay, where was Book of Mormon? Was it uh, in North America? Was it South America? I mean, there's just all sorts of theories. And that's because we're working with very little evidence. Well, the evidence is starting to increase. Things have been happening, and I think it's a wonderful time to, for us to uh, be looking at uh, uh, the ancient people that lived there. Uh, the palaces and temples have been excavated. So now you've got this new crop of PhD students. I worked with many of them while we were working in, in that area. And uh, what are they going to work on? There's no temples left. Uh, uh, so they've been working on the commoners' homes. They're starting to study how did the commoners live. And they're finding all sorts of things out that were never imagined. Uh, other things. Uh, uh, you've got this center of Olmec that uh, their time period corresponds to Jaredite. But what we found in uh, the last 10, 20 years is that there was another Jaredite, or I should say Olmec homeland, up here in northwest uh, Yucatan, you know, the major city there, Merida, and lots of highway construction. And you can't dig, you can't put a shovel in the ground without bringing up Olmec pottery. Uh, that place was just filled with people uh, back uh, uh, two to one to two thousand BC. Uh, Takeshi in his excavations at Sebal, he moved from Aguateca to Sebal and with his excavations there found another uh, large settlement of uh, Olmec. And so when we start looking at, okay, where did uh, people uh, begin to live down there, well, that's, that's changing. We're finding out more information. And that's wonderful. Uh, information helps us. A paradigm, what is it? Well, a paradigm, it's uh, an understanding of the facts. It's the generally accepted theory. You know, all Americans came across the Bering Land Bridge up in Alaska. Well, there's a few cracks in that uh, uh, theory in that paradigm. It's starting to show its age. It's starting to uh, break down a little bit because uh, we're finding people were there before that uh, land bridge existed. And uh, so anyway, that it doesn't fit. And therefore, the paradigm uh, needs to shift a little bit and will over the next years. Um, the ancient Maya economic paradigm the way that people envisioned that the ancient Maya lived. They lived a true Marxist economy. In other words, they brought all their goods into the benevolent ruler and he redistributed those goods. That's the idea of a Marxist economy. Well, in the 1940s and so forth, of course, uh, Karl Marx, he uh, writes his book in uh, the late 1800s, uh, Polanyi, he writes in about uh, 1940, and he categorizes uh, chiefdoms and kingdoms and so on, and, and he started attaching economic systems to them, and the Maya ended up as a system of chiefdoms, and they lived by uh, tribute and uh, uh, redistribution.
Well, so that was what they, uh, of course, because little was known about the Maya, it was convenient for the Marxists to label them. You know, we'll claim the Maya as Marxist because, uh, you know, you can't prove different. Well, now that we're excavating the commoners' homes, we are proving different. Um, so, with nothing to sell or nothing to buy, there would have been no marketplaces in Mesoamerica. That's part of the paradigm. And, uh, well, let's go on from there. The next place I worked, uh, this uh, fellow over here, the tall fellow is uh, Tim Beach from Georgetown University. And uh, he introduced me to the uh, archaeologist at Chunchuk Mill. Now, this is up in northwest Yucatan, where it's very dry. Now, remember in the Book of Mormon, there's a place where they moved up north where there were no trees. And they learned uh, how to make concrete. And they brought uh, some of their timber in by shipping. Well, this city fits all of that description uh, to a T. In, in fact, uh, the shipping, there's actually, they actually had a seaport out on the Gulf of Mexico. It's washed away, by the way. Uh, but uh, the beach there, you don't want to walk on the beach because it still has obsidian blades that are still sharper than surgical steel. And uh, anyway, interesting. Now, this is the commoner's home. When, uh, when Dr. Tim, uh, no, uh, Bruce Dallin, he was nearing uh, retirement and he wanted to spend his last few years excavating a site where the uh, Institute of Archaeology would not bother him. And so he picked a site that was the ugliest site in Mesoamerica, remote. In other words, a site where no tourist will ever go. Uh, the thing about Mexican archaeology is very much driven by tourism. If there's a beautiful pyramid to be seen, they want it uh, restored and uh, they'll start charging tickets for people to go in and see it. That's never going to happen at uh, Chinchuk Mill. So he thought he'd be left alone. Well, unfortunately, the first house that they dug, let's look at this. Uh, stone, but in between all of those stones is concrete. And you'll notice the floor. Beautiful, uh, beautifully paved uh, stucco floor, and then the plaster that goes up the wall. You can see some of the, some of it still on the wall at that point. And all the commoners were living in these types of homes, very nice homes, much better than what the locals would live in today. Uh, and then they found elite items. They found a carved pot, beautifully carved uh, piece of pottery. They found jade. Jade was gold to the Maya. Uh, and, uh, and then they started finding lots and lots of obsidian blades. Uh, in other words, it wasn't a commoner, a poor person that lived in that house. It was a fairly well-to-do middle-class merchant. And uh, yeah, the middle class, that's another thing that Marxism doesn't like is the middle class. They want to get rid of the middle class. Um, so this is uh, Bruce Dallin out there talking with my students. He's actually standing on what we call a Matati platform. There were about 20 Matatis on this platform. We don't know what was going on here, if that's just a place where all the women got together. That sounds sexist now, doesn't it? But the paradigm is women ground corn and carried water. Men did other things. Um, 
In fact, in one of our papers, uh, we found uh, uh, the floor in front of a shrine uh, was clean of phosphorus, no phosphorus in it. And just away from that uh, shrine, the buildings next to it, there was lots of phosphorus. Well, that was the first evidence that they had found that men were sweeping. And I thought, that's precious little information to go on to make such a big uh, claim. But for the archaeologists, that was plenty of information to, go, to make a big claim. I wanted to take it out of the paper, but Dr. Houston argued that, no, that's, that's your most important finding. So <laughs> anyway, uh, so this talk is uh, all about paradigms. Now, I was out, uh, you know, when you come from uh, Utah in April, it's still pretty cool. And then you go to Yucatan in April, and that's the hottest time of the year. It'll be a, a 90 to 100 degrees plus and 90 to 100% humidity. Uh, it's miserable. And so I'm out there that morning helping the student get started, and uh, I knew I needed to get cooled off. I told the student that I was getting too hot and I needed to get cooled off, and he started laughing at me because uh, the sentences I was uttering were in English, Spanish, and German, uh, for good measure. And when he told me what I said, like, oh, I'm incoherent. You better get me out of here. So I went back to the hacienda to cool off. Uh, that's where the archaeologists were staying. And my student went out to the field with uh, uh, Bruce Dallin. Now, my student, he was an undergrad at the time. But uh, Dallin pointed to this central square, the middle of uh, uh, Chunchuk Mill, flat area, no structures. There were these uh, single stone high rock alignments. There were a few of those. And absolutely no artifacts. They couldn't find a piece of pottery. Uh, and normally, at any ancient Maya site like that, you're going to find lots of pottery. And, uh, but they didn't find that there. And so he told uh, the student, you know, I think this was a marketplace. And uh, so my student suggested that we look at the phosphorus in the soils, which we did. Uh, that turned out to become his uh, master's thesis work. And if we get to that. So there's uh, uh, Bruce and I at the, uh, uh, the hacienda. But out there in the center of, by the way, Chunchuk Mill was a huge Maya city. Uh, you know, many, many square miles. It was, it was very large. It was very wealthy. Uh, no soil to support any crops. They had to bring all of their food into the city. And so there must have been trade going back and forth. This city is actually located halfway between the seaport on the Gulf Coast and the beautiful cities of the Pook Hills. That's Labna and Sahil and Ushmal. Uh, if you go uh, to Yucatan, uh, you want to go to Ushmal, one of the most beautiful cities. But you know, there's a lot of one-upsmanship there is amongst us. You know, if your neighboring community is beautifully decorated with carved stone, and you can't carve your stone at your city, they covered it all up with stucco and carved the stucco. Of course, all of that's gone. The stucco, it dissolves uh, uh, after a while. It weathers. So, uh, if we look at this, there's, these, by the way, are uh, causeways. Oh, they're two to 10 feet high, the width of a uh, two-lane highway, uh, raised, 
leveled, flattened, and then paved with beautiful white stucco. They're called sock bays. That means white way in uh, Maya. So these beautiful white ways. But this entire uh, plaza out here had been leveled and paved. Um, so we did the phosphorus analysis on it, and uh, let's see where we're good. Now, merchants, you know, Londa was the, he's the famous bishop of uh, Itzamal in Yucatan. He's the one that burned the Maya books. But he wrote a lot about the Maya when he first came there as a conquistador. And he said that their favorite pastime, their favorite thing to do in the world was to buy and sell and trade. And they had wonderful marketplaces. Now this is 1400s, 1500s when the conquistadors were there. They had these beautiful marketplaces. In fact, uh, the marketplace in uh, Mexico City was so astounding, the conquistadors commented that there, there's nothing like this in Europe. Uh, the amount of goods and the quality of the goods and, and so forth and the marketing system was, was amazing. Of course, according to Marxism, that didn't go back to ancient times. We've got to claim those people as uh, this uh, tribute and trade, or tribute and redistribution society. This little uh, Maya lady, the uh, material that she's wearing, that gives a lineage of her history. It tells what village she's from and what family she's from. Anyway, if you knew how to read all of that. But she's all of uh, maybe four and a half feet tall and she's carrying her wares to uh, market. Uh, the market in this case is going to be in front of the cathedral. The cathedral, uh, people are coming out after uh, Sunday Mass and you want to have your goods out there for people to see so that you can sell them. You know, and she's dragging two uh, uh, little boys along too. Um, the other thing that's astounding, this is a uh, market, that, uh, a modern-day market in Antigua, Guatemala. And the thing that astounded me was how beautifully displayed the vegetables were and how organized the market was. There's one place, it's like walking into the supermarket and you've got your fresh produce aisle and you've got your uh, you know, canned goods aisle and you've got a place where you'd buy paper or uh, ceramics or something like that. And these markets were organized the same way. And it goes back to ancient times. So this is the market at Chunchuk Mill with its phosphorus. It's parallel to this sock bay coming from the corner. And right up here at this side is the main temple and ball court of uh, Chunchuk Mill. So there's a few things that we're finding in common with these uh, marketplaces. One is there'll, there'll always be a public source of water and there will be ceremonial uh, buildings around. Because when you come to market, you may be walking 10, 15 miles to market to bring your uh, goods for sale. Well, while you're there, you do your ceremonies. You go to the temple, basically. Uh, and uh, so you'll often find these markets close to those places. Uh, this is a marketplace, an interesting one. It's out on Lake uh, Petinitsa. And uh, there are cities all the way around the lake. But there's one place that you could look out from any city uh, on the lake, uh, one place where everyone could see, and there was a big, beautiful white causeway coming up out of the lake, uh, up the hill. And at the top of the hill was a marketplace. This is a very tiny site. Very few people lived there. But there was the ceremonial temple. This right here is a ball court. 
The ball court usually has two parallel structures and in between is the playing field. What is this about the ball court? Well, the ball court uh, depicts war in heaven. That's where the good gods overcame the evil gods. And uh, uh, it would be a very difficult game to play that's with a 20 to 30 pound rubber, hard rubber ball and you hit that with your hips, because if you hit it with your arm, you probably break your arm. And a uh, very difficult game to play. Um, but apparently the hero gods were playing that game. That disturbed the gods of the underworld, and so war in heaven ensued. Uh, but look at this. Here's this big open field. No structures in it. It's been artificially leveled. And uh, phosphate in straight lines. There's a line there and another line here. And, uh, of course, other things going on. So uh, that's a good indication of uh, uh, marketplace activities. Um, this is another site, Koba. And uh, Koba, by the way, has the world's largest plaza. It's uh, about 160 acres, artificially leveled and paved. And... Uh, There's a sock bay coming in. This one over here, sock bay one. That sock bay is uh, 100 kilometers long, 70 miles, straight as an arrow, and leveled and paved. Um, so it starts over on the uh, center of uh, Yucatan and ends up in the, on the east side at Koba. Um, right at the end of that sock bay, you have this mysterious structure, they call it El Cono, I can't even see it here, but it's in here somewhere, uh, the cone. Uh, we think that was an ancient lighthouse, because if you're a merchant and you're caught 10 miles out from Chunchuk Mill, or uh, from uh, Koba in this case, uh, and you didn't want to hire a place to sleep overnight, with a light out there at the end of the sock bed, you could walk all the way in, in the dark, because you could see there would be a demarcation of where you were going and no way of getting lost. Uh, this is at uh, Kalak Mool, and this is uh, an interesting illustration of how paradigms work and, and uh, uh, the marketplace, the Maya economy paradigm. The archaeologist that worked at this site was a known Marxist. He was trained by Marxist uh, faculty members and uh, so to him, it was tribute and redistribution. There was no marketplace. But he uncovered this structure. So there was a structure in a, a plaza. And uh, of course, the decorations on the outside of that structure, in other words, the late classic uh, decorations, they all wash away. The late classic is all weathered and washed away. The pre-classic, the people that lived before there, their ruins are very well preserved including this one. So the outside of this interior structure, an older structure, uh, the walls were plastered and then painted with about uh, 16 different scenes of marketplace activities. Well, people had found out that he had found this structure. He actually allowed one of those panels to be published, but the rest of them he hid. He didn't want anyone to see them. And in fact, uh, we went out there to the site uh, we climbed across the barbed wire fence. We weren't supposed to go in there, but uh, we went in anyway. And uh, 
uh, here's the old structure, or the newer structure, and the old structure's inside of this. So they went in and tunneled around it, basically, to find those uh, images. But notice uh, the archaeologist has placed concrete over the top of them up there. He didn't want anyone to get in and see those. Certainly didn't want pictures to get out. Didn't want word to get out that I, there really were marketplaces down there. Um, but we published our paper in uh, 2007, and that really released a lot of pent-up energy. Uh, so here's uh, this painting. Uh, uh, someone's being helped with a large jar. Someone else is eating a gruel or, or something. But in the other panels, people are selling salt, they're selling tamales, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, in the time since 2007, there have been several books, in this case uh, four books, uh, there's actually more than that now, and numerous journal articles uh, published by the archaeologists talking about the ancient Maya marketplace. In other words, they had seen signs that there was a thriving middle class among the Maya, and they had seen the signs, the trade items and so forth, to indicate market activities. But once we were able to physically demonstrate that there was a marketplace in among the Maya, it just released the floodgates and the papers came flying. Uh, people wanted to talk about it but didn't dare uh, with that uh, paradigm in place. I'm about out of time, but very quickly, where did the Maya grow their corn and how can we find those places? Well, uh, corn is a super plant. According to the Maya, the Indians, it was given to them by the gods, and that's still the best solution we can figure out because scientists have not been able to show how corn came about. It's a mysterious plant. Um, but it's a super plant. It has a super efficient photosynthetic system. It's called C4, meaning that the first uh, organic molecule formed in photosynthesis has four carbons. But not only that, the stomates, where uh, oxygen gets out and CO2 comes in, they remain open longer. Uh, and uh, no, they, they close. They close sooner. <laughs> it's the other ones that uh, open longer. But they close to keep water in. And so that helps them be efficient. But uh, so what we're getting into is a thing called isotopic. Uh, discrimination. By the way, these are the wetlands, and that's one of the questions I had was, you've got all these wetlands down there. Were they used by the Maya? The thing is that, uh, anyway, during the uh, rainy season you can grow corn in the uplands on the hillsides and so forth. But in the dry season, some of these soils down in the wetlands dry out enough, you could maybe uh, grow corn during the dry season. And we've actually shown, uh, there are people today that actually do that, and we've shown that in many cases that was the most popular place to grow your corn was down uh, in the drier points of the, uh, uh, the wetlands. So wetland agriculture was going on. Well, anyway, it's been wonderful to talk to you today. There's a lot more uh, uh, happening. I think it's interesting to see things come about. And uh, anyway, uh, be patient. If you're looking for, well, how can we show uh, evidence of Book of Mormon activities? Well, it's there, but we have to be patient to see it uh, shown by archaeologists.
Have you been given any, have you given any thought to where Book of Mormon lands might be located? And uh, the answer is yes. Actually, I've worked with uh, Robert Roylance. Some of you might know him. But between the two of us, we've come up with a scheme. It's still a work in progress. But if you want to see it, it's online. It's uh, Book of Mormon Lands. So it's not Book of Mormon Central, but bookofmormonlands.org. And uh, uh, the thing about our model is instead of taking that hourglass with the north, some of the people have to set it on its side to make it work in their models, but ours straight up north and south. Um, anyway, I think you might find that interesting. Uh, what are evidence of horses among ancient Maya currently? Well, there's a paradigm there. There were no horses. So if you find a horse bone, it wasn't there. Uh, in fact, there's a, a paper I've uh, read, Lippi is the author, uh, and uh, they were coring down to a certain depth. They were in uh, 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 Ecuador on the side of an old volcano looking for the city underneath in the ashes. And as they were coring, they brought up uh, an equid bone. That means either a horse or a donkey. And uh, so he actually drew on his map a hole in the ground. Somebody had dug a hole into 1200 AD ash. This is ash that fell 1200 AD. They actually dug a hole and buried a horse in it. Uh, yeah, the swirly thing on top of the crown, oh, above the crown and so forth, uh, those are mainly made of feathers, uh, the headdress. Uh, Heartland model, any thoughts? Uh, well, if we had trade between Central America and North America, of course there'd be Nephites there. So uh, I think the two models can work. Um, well, okay. thank you. Thank you very much. So this is your gift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.